Hi and welcome to the CU20 podcast. We are a group of young adults living in Montreal who meet together to talk about what it means to be a Christian. The podcast today is a sermon from our series on the basic beliefs of Christianity. Hope you enjoy. But what three questions would you use to describe yourself is a question that maybe would be one of those questions you could ask Jesus if you ever got to meet him. And I think it's one of those questions that uh, would be incredibly uh, juicy, especially for those who uh, are historians and theologians uh, who aren't sure of the answer yet. Jesus is a massive topic of debate and study and scholarly research of trying to figure out exactly how would he answer that question. What did Jesus think about himself? Who does he think he is? And that's going to be the question that we look at tonight. That's part of our exploration of Christianity, and that's what we're doing at the moment. We're going through a series looking at the the basic tenets of Christianity, the basic beliefs that we hold to. And the heart of Christianity is Jesus. We have to spend a lot of time looking at him. If he's at the, he is at the foundation of our belief. Without him being at the foundation, uh, we've really ripped the heart out of Christianity. There's a joke that I didn't make up. I first heard it by uh, Michael Ramstead of RZIM, and he said, if you take Christ from Christian, all you're left with is Ian, and Ian can't help you. I thought that was really good. So I think it's a great place to start when you're looking at Christianity. Okay, tell me a bit more about Jesus. And it's often kind of been a bit puzzling to me when I've, I've heard a lot of apologetics talks uh, where people will try to defend Christianity and they'll spend a huge amount of time uh, looking at evidence for the existence of God. Now, I'm not saying that's not helpful. It is helpful to look at that stuff. It's good. But if I can prove to you that God exists, a creator God exists, I have not actually brought you all that much closer to being a Christian than you were before. Because after all, almost everyone believes in God if you look at the world population. But the definition of what that God is like and who that God is is wildly different. So if we're just looking at does God exist as a creator, uh, it's a good and helpful question, but in terms of a defense of Christianity, we really haven't brought anyone much closer to the truth or to the, the unique claims of Christianity simply by looking at that. I'm, I'm trying to stand back a bit. I think Adrian is working on a solution. Am I tolerable to listen to right now? I know it's very echoey, but we're good? Okay. I'm so scared. <laughs> anyway. So, we, we give... The, the more you... Fo- I, so here's, here's my argument. Sorry, I got distracted for a second there. The reason why it's good to focus on Christianity... Uh, sorry, on Christ, even when you're looking at apologetics, and you give him the, the main focus in terms of defending the claims of Christ and defending the character of Christ is because rather than proving that God exists and not getting you much closer to you know, a uniquely Christian perspective, by looking at Christ, he is, there was a, uh, an illustration I heard once that I've never been able to forget. He's, he is the first domino that falls, after which all the other dominoes begin to fall after that because if you can can kind of make a good, strong case, a believable, credible case for the claims of Christ, that they're legitimate claims, for his claims, his life, his miraculous resurrection. If we can show that these things happened, 
then here, that's the first domino that falls, that after which things like the existence of God, more than that, that though, the nature of God, what is God like, that falls into place because Jesus Christ reveals the nature of God. More than that, the meaning of life. Jesus speaks about the meaning of life, and if he has backed up his claims with this type of a lifestyle and these kinds of miracles, okay, well, then the meaning of life, as he describes it, is true. Is there life after death? Jesus does that, shows that by pr proving it, by raising from the dead, and then, and then going on from there. There's all of the stuff that begins to fall into place, all these things that become uh, realized, and we, all these big questions that we get answered if we focus on Jesus and say, in terms of apologetics, let's start there. So let's start there. Let's look at what does Jesus say about himself. There's a few weeks back to back that we're going to look at Jesus as the topic. So this time we're looking at his claims. What did Jesus think about himself? And if you want to get to know someone, it's a good place to start, right? As we just showed you. Early on in, the, in my walk as a Christian, when I'd only been a Christian for a couple of years, I remember there was like this big push all of a sudden for these books that were coming out. And a lot of these books uh, were, and not only just books, but also like personalities who started to like sort of make way in the world and, and articles that were appearing in very legitimate magazines that were essentially saying, uh, we've uncovered who the real Jesus is. And so there were these kind of clickbaity, before clickbait was a thing, uh, these kind of clickbaity titles that would say like, unveiling the real Jesus. And you'd pick it up and what it would essentially be is a skeptic who's written a book saying that essentially in the Gospels, Jesus never claims to be God. And he was nothing more than just a good moral teacher. And everything else that's, uh, that the church believes has kind of been built up over time. And so they would build up these arguments uh, based on that assertion. And so as a beginner in the faith, I was actually quite shaken by these books. I would think, oh my gosh, is that true? Did Jesus never really claim to be God? Did he never really claim to be anything more than a good moral teacher? And so in studying these things, what I've discovered, and I read some of them, is that a lot of the times what they're based on is a very limited reading of the text. So they would look at something and divorce it of all context and just look at it from a, you know, 21st century eyes and therefore totally change the meaning of what Jesus was saying or miss the meaning of what Jesus was saying. So that was one big mistake they would make often because a lot of what Jesus says contextually was dynamite. But to us today, we look at it and go like, I don't really get it. What does he mean by that? They got it when we don't. And the second thing is they would dismiss much of the Gospels as unreliable. For instance, the whole book of John, they would dismiss as largely unreliable because they said, oh, it was written too long after the, the life of Jesus and we can't trust it. And they wouldn't do that just with the book of John. They would do it with other portions of the gospel too. And so there are portions, particularly in the book of John, where Jesus does make these very strong claims, these claims to be one with the Father and, you know, like essentially claiming to be God. And they would dismiss it out of hand. And so this is how they built their arguments. And the reality is far different from their claims. The reality is, and I'm grateful that I understand this now, is that first of all, we should not dismiss any of the Gospels as unreliable. We have no reason to do so from a, from a historian perspective. Historically speaking, the historicity, the reliability of the Gospels is compelling. Now I'm gonna to point to certain things tonight and not be able to go into much depth on them like I'm about to do right now. For the, the, the argument for the historicity of the Gospels is very strong. To say that there is good, good reason to take literally as truth what they're saying. 
because they had no good reason to lie, because they had no, uh, because the way they're written is supposed to be understood as the literal truth, not as a legendary account. C.S. Lewis, when he was sort of toying with the idea of Christianity, he comes from uh, a background in which he was a professor of essentially literature. It's more specific than that, but he, would, he studied and he was an expert in ancient literature. And he said all of these different you know, peers that are theologians, uh, but skeptics at the same time, were looking back at the Gospels and say, oh, they're just legends. They're legendary accounts, like the same as the, you know, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, those kinds of things. And he came in to faith and he said, I don't know what they know about uh, legends, but I know a lot about legends. And the Gospels are not legends. He says, this is my life's research. I understand what makes a legend a legend. And when I read the Gospels, they are not the same. You, the Gospels were not written as legends, and they certainly don't, shouldn't be understood that way because of the closeness that they have. The more and more we discover, archaeologically speaking, uh, we see that the Gospels were written within a generation of the life of the, the, the resurrection of Jesus. The closest we have is the writing of Paul's, which is dated somewhere between 20 to 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus way too early for it to be a legend. The latest gospel, John, was written within 70 years of the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, just to play it safe today, I've chosen all the passages we're going to read are going to be from the book of Mark. Mark is widely considered to be the earliest gospel, so the, you know, by that argument, the most likely to be true and accurate. But bear in mind, all of the gospels took place within the time period where people who witnessed the events were still alive. No, God, no other legend has that type of, uh, that type of um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. It, none of the legends have that short a time frame in them. All of them are written hundreds of years after the events that you know, were claimed to take place took place. The Gospels also are written with such a complete consistency, both internally and externally. They're corroborated by other evidences, both within the Scriptures and without the Scriptures as well. You look at uh, historians like today, uh, Gary Habermas, and he's a, a historian who says, look, basically all the, all the historians that he knows that study this period of time look at the Gospels and they acknowledge the Gospels are compelling enough that they are legitimate enough historical documents to say it is true that Jesus appeared to be alive after his death, after his crucifixion. Now, these are not Christians. But they will say, yeah, it's true that Jesus, from everything we can tell, Jesus appeared to be alive after his crucifixion. These are not Christians, but the, way that, the reason they can do this is because they say the historical evidence is there. Now, they'll explain it away in other ways that don't point to a resurrection, but the point is they can't deny that one you know, incredibly important fact. We have credible documents uh, that say these things. The Gospels should be seen as the real words, the real actions of Jesus. We have no reason, you know, intellectually speaking, to doubt them. And it leads to like what it said in chapter 2 of uh, that basic Christianity book that we're reading together. William Temple is quoted as saying, you know, the, all the evidence we have about Jesus, all the evidence we have points to a Jesus who worked miracles and made stupendous claims. I bet you William Temple's English. No one who's not English says stupendous. So I'm pretty sure he is. And lastly, and what I find is for personally to be one of the most compelling arguments of all, is that we have to in some way explain the radical transformation of the disciples. It is an absolutely irrefutable fact that just after the death, and, the death of Jesus Christ, weeks afterwards, 
We have a group of people who are all of a sudden on fire for the gospel, going out, all of them, perhaps with the exception of John, to their death as martyrs for the gospel. Now, nobody martyrs themselves for something they know is a hoax. I mean, it's close enough to the event that if, they, they would, they, if anyone made it up, it had to have been them. No one else could have made it up. It, it would have been them. If they added words to what Jesus was really saying, then they would have known it was a hoax. They would have known it had been this massive cover-up. You know, liars make terrible martyrs, as the saying goes. We have to, in some way, explain the, the radical transformation of the gospel, who, uh, sorry, of the disciples, who within the gospels, uh, fumbling, don't really get it, don't really understand, and then something happens after the death of Jesus. After the death of Jesus, they're scattered, and then something happens. And all of a sudden, their world changes. The people who are willing to die for this, what happens? See, to me, these are just drops in the buckets in terms of good evidence to say, we can believe what these Gospels are saying about Jesus. And as I've grown in my understanding of the Gospels and grown in my maturity as a Christian, I've seen that far from the claim that Jesus never really said that he was God. In fact, when you look at the Gospels, every Gospel, on every page, Almost in every story, Jesus is making these, he's pointing to himself having supreme authority. He's announcing that he has ultimate authority, that he is of divine character. In all kinds of different ways, he's announcing it. And what John Stott says is that uh, Jesus is, abs- sorry, is absolutely and forever unique. In short, we believe uh, him to be worthy not only of our admiration, but also of our worship. That should be the conclusion that the Gospels leave us with when we take them at face value. And so John Stott breaks it into three, three or four categories uh, of the different ways that Jesus Christ talks about himself or points towards himself and kind of lets us know who he is. The first that he points to is self-centered teaching, that Jesus Christ, in a lot of his teaching, points to himself as the center of these huge, the answers to the huge questions that we have in life. So Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 38 says this. Let me just get there. Then he called his, the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must first deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for, my, for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes uh, in his Father's glory with the holy angels. What Jesus is pointing to here, he's saying, you want to, to really live? You want to have a true life? How do you do that? Follow, what, what would be the next word you would expect of any other religious teacher to say? Follow God. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Otherwise, you're going to forfeit your life. You may gain the world, but you're going to forfeit your life. He goes further to say, if, if anyone is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of them. On when? The judgment day. Jesus puts himself at the center of judgment. He will be the one judging. The meaning of life. The meaning, of, you know, as we stand, the, the accountability we have before God. He is at the center of it all. 
He goes further in other passages to speak of himself being at the center of our love. Love no one more than you love me. Again, these are places that this is, this is for God. He also puts himself at the center of the work of the Holy Spirit in this world. He says when the advocate comes, he will essentially be continuing my ministry. He will continue to go out uh, and remind you of what I have said. He puts himself at the center of so many things in his teaching. Center of judgment, center of love, center of the Holy Spirit's work, center of the meaning of life. Then he has his indirect claims. Things that he does that only God should do. And yet he does them on a fairly regular basis. In Mark 13, uh, verse 31, Jesus says this. Let's get there. Heaven and, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. What is he saying here? He's saying my words have with them the divine authority that they will never pass away. They will be eternally relevant. My words will be eternally relevant. Who can say that? Who can, who can claim to have that except for God? He claims not only that will he be there, the one judging, but the basis of the judgment itself will be on the attitude that people have had towards him. That will be the basis of the judgment. He's not only judged, but he is the criteria by which people are judged. On many other occasions, he does all kinds of things like this. He forgives sins. He claims to give life. He teaches with an authority that is not uh, based on uh, the authority of another, but based on his own authority. So often throughout the Old Testament, you see Moses, you see the prophets. They all kind of come with teaching and they all say some version of, thus saith the Lord. God says this. What does Jesus come when he says? He says, I say, I tell you this. He does it on his own authority. Then we move further to see his, his dramatized claims, his miracles. We are reminded in the Gospels that the miracles were never just sort of parlor tricks, never just things to amaze a crowd. They all had a point. They all were trying to teach something. They were essentially like living parables. And in the miracles, we see him commanding authority over nature as he calms the seas, as he multiplies food. We see him having authority over the spiritual world as he drives out demons. Authority over uh, all manner of reality, even more than that, announcing a new kingdom that will be coming. He is the herald of the kingdom of God, a kingdom which he then, in other places, calls my kingdom. The kingdom of God is my kingdom, he'll go on to say. His miracles announce this new kingdom as it comes as well, it comes in his name. He also uses miracles to back up his statements. One of the best examples of this is Mark chapter 2, where Jesus heals a paralytic man. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. So this, I don't have time to read the whole story, but in the whole story, he heals a paralytic man. But before he does it, he says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, sons, your sins are forgiven and to which people are, are incensed and, and offended by what he says. And then he goes on to say, what is easier for me to say? Uh, easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat, mat and walk. But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go. And he does. Jesus right here is doing something where he is saying something that he shouldn't be able to say unless he is God. And that he's doing something that he shouldn't be able to do to back up the thing that he just said. 
He goes on to say, look, even if you don't believe my words, believe in, believe in the miracles. Believe in what I've done. It shows you who I am. He goes on to, to point to his miracles as, as evidence of what he is saying to be true, backing up his claims. The last thing is his direct claims. Jesus clearly believes himself to be the promised Messiah. He does that at the very inauguration of his, his ministry, as he reads from the book of Isaiah. But he wants people to know that he is the Messiah, but the Messiah is very different from what they thought he was going to be. Totally other, totally different. And so we have this amazing declaration at the, book, at the end of the book of Mark. Oh, I accidentally lost it. Where Jesus, standing before the religious officials of the day, Mark chapter 14, verse 60 and 61, Jesus makes this stunning declaration. It says this, But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a very obvious reference to a very well-known passage of Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, you have this amazing, in verse 17, sorry, 13, you have this reference to this one who will come, this figure who all of the Jews at the time understood to be essentially a supernatural figure, something far more than a prophet, something glorious and powerful and majestic and divine. And this figure who was going to come and share the very throne of the God of Israel with him. And Jesus is saying very obviously in this passage, that's me. That person who you understand to be all of that, that's me. And what do they do? They get furious. They, they, then they say, we don't need any more evidence. He's a blasphemer. He should go. And we look at that we think, I don't get it. They got it. And that's where the context matters. We may look at that claim and say, well, he's not really claiming to be God. Are you serious? Do you understand what the Jewish people understood about that passage? Do you, see, would, do you see what they would have seen? Clearly you don't, because they crucified him because of what he just said. What he just said was, if it's not true, the height of blasphemy. But if it is true, then that means something very, very significant. Jesus will go on, and all throughout the gospel, he'll explain his connection to God as something that is so intimate, as John Stott said, to know him is to know God, to see him is to see God, to believe in him is to believe in God, to receive him is to receive God, to hate him is to hate God, to honor him is to honor God. Jesus makes all of those claims throughout the gospel. John Stott goes on to say, he is not just another signpost, he is the destination to which all other signposts lead. This is what Jesus thought about himself. This is what he taught about himself as well. The claims themselves, I know, are not evidence. You can claim all kinds of things. But the claims are noteworthy and they deserve explanation. I have, as a pastor, I get to have these encounters, with some sense of regularity, I have met people who literally claim to be God in some way. They claim to be the second coming of Jesus. They claim to be some kind of divine figure in one way or another. I typically meet them, as you would expect, in hospitals. Now, I don't take a lot of their claims, any of their claims so far, seriously. Why? Because the whole picture gives way to a certain analysis of the idea. Now, when you're looking at Jesus, you have claims like this, claims that, as C.S. Lewis will say, claiming to be God is on the same level as claiming to be a poached egg. I mean, it's just like, 
It's crazy to claim that you're God. Unless there's something more to your claim. And there is something more to it. When you look at the whole life of Jesus, when you look more than that, at the evidence that backs up what is going on here, there's more to it than just that. The alternatives, if he's not who he says he is, the alternatives make little sense. The, the, the alternative that it's just a legend, it's just made up. Well, we already looked at that. There wasn't enough time to make it up. And the people who were spreading these, if you want to call it rumors, then were the ones who died for them. And they, were, they would have to be the ones who made it up in the first place. There was no one else to deceive them. They were the ones who would have spread this deception from, from the get-go. And that wouldn't make any sense. It can't be a legend. He also can't be a liar. Maybe he just knew he wasn't, but he just said he was. But if he was a liar, then it's juxtaposed against a life of incredible love sacrifice, humility, of service and compassion. His character is actually what we're going to look at next week together. Maybe he's not a liar. Maybe he's crazy, like a lot of the people I've met. Maybe he's a lunatic. But you look at the, all of his teaching, his life, it has such coherence, such cognizance, such beauty and intricacy and, and, and insight into people's minds. He does not at all exhibit the characteristics of anyone who is losing themselves especially has lost themselves to such a point that they are claiming to be something on the level of a poached egg. It just doesn't, it doesn't line up. And so I know it may be hard to believe, but I'd say it's harder to believe the alternatives than to believe that he is actually who he says he is, in which case he is Lord. I believe that the claims hold up to scrutiny. Now I know it's not a foregone conclusion, but it bears weight. There may be a lot of legitimate objections and questions, and questions are valid. Questions are good. I still have questions today. But as you go forward, this is my last encouragement to you now. Now that we've laid a case together, I'd encourage you, questions are valid. But when you're asking questions, make sure you really want the answers. Last week, I, I mentioned briefly at the end that we ought to be skeptical of our skepticism. Now, I didn't really explain it last week. I'll try to explain it now. The reason we should be skeptical of our skepticism is because claims like what Jesus is making, the claims of Jesus run directly contrary to our desires for self-determination and for freedom. We want to be our own masters. We want to be our own Lord. We want to live the life that we want to live. We want to make choices that will benefit us and be of our own determination. And Jesus, if he is who he said he is, that means a lot to give up for us. Now, don't underestimate this. This is a huge bias that we carry within us, a huge bias through which you will determine and examine all the evidence, unless you're willing to make a concerted effort to rise above it. I've met so many people who say, you know, show me good evidence and I'll believe it. I'll happily believe it. Don't flatter yourself. Your heart doesn't work that way. My heart doesn't work that way. I can't look at any evidence without bias. I can't look at any argument without inserting myself into it all. You think you can? Come on. We have to really consider our own bias in here and work strongly against it to even have a hope of taking it with any sense of neutrality. Jesus himself did miracles, raised from the dead, and yet we still see in the, in the scriptures they were those who doubted. There was whole towns that he denounced because he says, if, 
I, the miracles I did in you, if I had done them in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. You didn't. Jesus did countless miracles among certain people, and they still doubted. You think that if you were just to see the right evidence that you would believe, you don't understand your heart yet. Because your heart is the same as theirs. The reason they still didn't believe is not because, is, is because of this. Because unbelief is not the, not the absence of something. It's actually the presence of something. Unbelief is the presence, very often, of fear or pride or something that's very tangibly holding you back. The reason you don't believe is because you are too stubborn or too afraid or something like that. Unbelief has a root cause to it that won't just be solved if you're shown enough evidence. You have to be willing to take that step. Jesus, in Luke chapter 7, compares the generation that he's living in, which I think is, bears a lot of hallmarks of the generation that we're living in, to kind of petty children, grumpy children. He says, what shall I compare this generation to? I'll compare them to children in the marketplace who, I don't want to, basically he, his analogy is a lot better, but essentially every time one kid will suggest a game, like, oh, let's do this, some kids will be like, I don't want to do that. Oh, let's do that. Ah, I don't want to do that. Ah, I don't want to do that. And the problem, they're, they're pointing at the problem being like, oh, I don't want, you know, they, that's not a good enough game. That's not a good enough song. I don't want to do this and that. They're pointing at the, the song or the game as the problem. But the problem is that they're not in charge. The problem is that it's not their show. It's not, there's nothing wrong with the music, so to speak. And, and then Jesus will go on to explain why they've rejected John the Baptist, rejected Jesus. He says, there's nothing wrong with John the Baptist, his message. There's nothing wrong with my message. It's just that it's not your message. So it means that you're not in charge. And because of that, you don't like it. Just like a child. Ouch. <laughs> That's what Jesus says. And I'm telling you, this is not just a problem for unbelievers. It's a problem for Christians, too. And I, to make this even more personal, look, I... I've met people, again, I've met people who have seen miracles and had miracles happen to them, healings, or miraculous healings, miraculous salvation out of incredibly difficult, dangerous places. And for a little while, it made a difference in their life, but then psh, it's gone. And myself, I've seen miracles. I've seen incredible, unexplainable things, and yet my heart is still stubborn. I can sense it inside me as well. Christians too, we are often hindered in our following of our willingness to be true disciples because we want to be in control. A.W. Tozer says, as much of our difficulty as seeking Christians stems from our unwillingness to take God as He is and adjust our life accordingly. We insist upon trying to modify Him and to bring Him nearer to our own image. We can get a right start only by accepting God as He is and learning, learning to love him for what he is. In light of this, my encouragement to you to be, as Christians and non-Christians, be careful of your intellectual difficulties with Christianity. They may just be a smokescreen. Be careful for the reasons you're using to not follow him as Lord because they may just be smoke screens for a fear or a pride that you're unwilling to let go of. If you were a judge and you uh, get 
on your desk before you, you're presiding over a case in which the defendant is you know, the CEO of a company that's, that's being charged with some great uh, fraud. And this company, you have a huge monetary investment into it. And you know that if that company goes down, you're gonna lose a lot of money. If you are a judge with even an ounce of integrity, what will you do? You'll, rec you'll recuse yourself from the, from the case. You have a conflict of interest. There's no way you cannot be unbiased in a case like that, one in which you personally have so much on the line. You recognize that. No court in the country would possibly accept a ruling from someone where it's discovered the judge has that kind of bias. What about your hearts? You are being called to preside over, an, over evidence, preside over a case in which you have an enormous vested interest. You have a lot to lose here. If he is who he says he is, you lose claim to live your life the way you want to live it. You lose claim to just do what you want to do. You lose control. You lose a lot. Understand that. And because you understand that, my advice to, be, to you would be make really, really sure of the answers you have. Double check, triple check, keep searching, keep digging, come back, come back. Because if you're wrong about this, there's no going, I mean, it's huge, it's everything. So make sure you are taking the evidence as best you can, removing yourself from the bias. And if you do that, and I believe that Christianity can hold up to criticism, it can hold up to skepticism, that it has you know, not only intellectual credibility, but existential uh, satisfaction. And if you do that, I want to end with this quote by uh, G.K. Chesterton. He, he says this um, about, I mean, you're going to discover this, what millions and millions of people all over throughout the entire span of history have already discovered. He said, if I found a key on the road and discovered it fit and opened a particular lock at my house, I would assume most likely that the key was made by the lockmaker. And if I find a set of teachings set out in a pre-modern oriental society that has proven itself of such universal validity that it has fascinated and satisfied millions of people in every century, including the best minds in history and the simplest hearts, that it has made itself at home in virtually every culture, inspired masterpieces of beauty in every field of art, continues to grow rapidly and spread and assert itself in lands where a century ago the name of Jesus Christ was not even heard, if such a teaching so obviously fits the locks of so many human souls in so many times and in so many places, are they likely to be the words of a deceiver or a fool? In fact, is it not more likely they were designed by the heart maker? Let me pray together. Lord, your words have the ability to penetrate our hearts, to unlock within us what we truly long for. We thank you for that. God, for all of us, for people like me who have not yielded complete control of my life over to you, may you, Lord, do a work within my heart. Convict me, mold me and shape me so that I will truly trust you in the way that I ought to and treat you as the king that you are. And Lord, for others in the room who perhaps have not yet made that step of faith and allegiance to you, I ask, Lord, that you would confront them 
not only tonight, but in the nights and the weeks to come, to really be sure, to check their heart. And Lord, I pray that you help them in this. I know that nobody truly comes to you unless you call them. So I ask God, may you call them tonight. And I ask, Lord, that you may help them to respond. We pray this all in our Lord and Savior, Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can find us on the website peoplesmontreal.org. There you'll find information about where and when we meet, as well as a catalog of past sermons and other resources. Hope to see you soon.